0: So she didn't know you were black, and then all of a sudden, changed the the opportunity. You can't meet with the creative director, you know. I just wanted to meet you. Thanks a lot. Yep,
1: it that gig evaporated. So that's when I that's when I said, oh, this is like, this is like, back to kindergarten, first grade, second grade again. This is starting all over again because I'm not a basketball player, right? And here we go again. So that's when I knew.
0: We'll discuss race and how it plays a factor and how we didn't even talk about this topic because we were afraid. A Black Executive Perspective. Welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast, a safe space where we discuss all matters related to race, especially race in corporate America. I'm your host, Tony Tidbit. So As you guys know, the advertising uh, is a powerful medium that shapes our perceptions, influences our choices, and reflects on our society. However, it often falls short in representing the rich tapestry of our diverse world. The advertising industry has been criticized for its lack of diversity in its workforce, campaigns, and leadership roles. It often fails to truly represent Different races, ethnicities, genders, and backgrounds. This lack of diversity has far reaching implications, not only in terms of representation, but also in terms of the messages it sends and the opportunities it provides. Diverse perspectives bring creativity, innovation, and fresh ideas to the table. When we lack diversity, we risk. Perpetrating stereotype. Oh, excuse me. We risk perpetuating stereotypes, unintentional biases, and alienating large portions of the audience. Our guest today, Jimmy Smith, Chairman CEO of Amusement Park Entertainment, is a renowned figure in the world of advertising and entertainment. With a career spanning over three decades, he has constantly pushed creative boundaries and championed diversity and inclusion in the industry. Today, Jimmy will discuss his story in the advertising industry, his challenges, successes, and how he was able to help break down barriers to make it a more inclusive field for all. Jimmy Smith, welcome to a Black Executive Perspective Podcast, my brother.
1: What's good, man? How you doing, Tony? Buddy,
0: I'm doing well, man. Look, I, I'm very blessed that you're here, bro. You have a—I mean, I could still—I had to cut the bio a little short. Yeah. For sure you know, right? We've been on here about 20 minutes, but every one of the accolades and all the things have you—you've already um, achieved—is very well warranted. So, really appreciate that you're here and talk about the industry, which you know I've been in for 27 years. So I'm, I'm excited to get into your background and hear a lot of the stories and things that you've accomplished, but also what we're talking about, you know, how the industry can be more diverse. But before we go there, let's, let's do a little warm up first, buddy. Can you tell me a little bit where you're living now and, and tell me about your family?
1: Oh, I'm in Southern Cal and, um, you know, we we enjoying that, you know, L.A. life. Irvine, Newport Beach, all, all around up in there, the the team is uh, up and through Southern California. We dig the beaches. Got,
0: got it. So beaches, but you didn't grow up there, though. You grew up in the Midwest, correct?
1: I grew up in the Midwest, but I, I'm a lifelong water guy. I grew up my, um, you know, Lake Michigan is, you know, basically where I grew up. And um, matter of fact, my home hometown is, I was born in Muskegon, um, which is right where the Lake Michigan is and and um, the actual community is Norton Shores. So uh, everywhere I, when I left home and got my first gig was in Chicago. That was on Lake Michigan and, you know, lived in Hawaii and so on. I could go on and on, but it's always been some water Around even in 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 Portland we had the rivers, so it, it's, it's about the water. I'm a water guy, man. I'm Aquaman. You're water. <laughs> I, I,
0: I I hate to ask you what your sign is because it may be Aquarius. No, <laughs> <Okay. laughs>
1: no, <Nope, nope>. Sagittarius.
0: <laughs> That's all right. That's mm-hmm. all right. But I'm glad you love the water. I don't totally get it. So married, kids. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes, got um been married to my high school sweetheart since you know since college i met her the first day i got to school and um then um got two sons born in chicago and but raised on, on the west side of things in in um la and also um portland and um you know they're big now they they aren't they aren't the boys in, anymore mm-hmm. they are they're, they're young um young men and i got two grandsons and i got uh, rockin and prince and i got um Another one on the way. Her name is going to be Retro, Lord's willing, and I got two beautiful um, um, daughter-in-laws. I call them daughters. I don't stick the in-law thing on them. But um, McFly and Armani. So between smoke keeping me straight, my wife, and and the rest of the fam, we're doing all right. And and I, I we wouldn't be, you wouldn't even be talking to me if it were not for my brother and sister D, who's the executive producer. Um, writer, creative extraordinaire, and in poetry, he was a um, Grammy, not a Grammy, but a Tony Award winning and Emmy Award winning writer.
0: Wow, buddy. So look, I'm listening. Number one, you seem very blessed, beautiful family. They're still growing. I'm, I'm so, you know, I love the names I'm hearing. <laughs> Everybody has, they got, everybody's got a cool name. How Who does What's the naming convention? How does that work
1: there? Some of them. In your family. Some of them come with it, but, um, you know, like Armani was born Armani, um, Rocket, my grand, one of my grandsons, he was, he was born, um, Rocket and, uh, but Smoke, I gave her the first, that name, the first day I met her at um, college because I thought she was smoking. So the first, (laughs) (laughs) that's how she got that one.
0: I love it, buddy. So your creative juices started a long time ago and and they're still, you know, activated today.
1: And, you know, I forgot, Jarrell is named after Superman's dad. That's my youngest son. I figured he'd be wondering why Sequel was named after me and he wasn't, so I said, "Well, we'll name, you, name him Jarrell." So I snuck that by Smoke. She would have never allowed it if, she, if he knew if she knew he was named after a comic book character. So, but I had, you know, sequel had such a cool one. Every time somebody hears sequel, they go, "Ah, oh,
0: where did he get that from?" Exactly, that is awesome. So, listen, my friend. Look, like I said, we're blessed to have you, and I don't say that lightly. And um, in, in the audience, you can look up Jimmy Smith. And when you do, you'll see that he has been on pretty much every platform in terms of not just from a creative standpoint, but also from an interview standpoint. I mean, from Ebony, LA Times, CNN, you name it, there's not Forbes, there has not been a platform that has not reached out to you and you've chatted and talked about your career, which is awesome. So the question I have for you is like, why did you, what was one of the reasons why you wanted to appear on the Black Executive Perspective podcast?
1: Well, I met your daughter. I met your daughter at, um, Medria Blues, um, school, sixth through 12th grade. Medria, um, is, is a superstar. And, um, you talk about cool names. She's got a cool name and I'm, I'm sure I'm slaying it, but I, I love you, Medria. And anyway, she built the school from the ground up. She had all these, Mm -hmm. um, dope kids at her, um, school and one of them was your daughter. And mm-hmm. she immediately came up to me while after I finished speaking and said, You got to meet my dad. You got to meet my dad. He's, he's doing this. He's doing that. And, um, do you mind if I introduce you? And I said, Of course. So you, you thank your daughter for that. Oh, uh, look, buddy, I did. As soon as we chatted in any time, um, I mean, I remember there weren't that many blacks at all in the industry when I was coming up. So I didn't have anybody to talk to. And my dad was an entrepreneur. And I remember the things that he went through, you know, as a black man. And so anytime somebody uh, was doing something positive and, and like you are brother, (laughs) you and Adrian, I'm, I'm in.
0: Well, thank you, buddy. And we're glad that you're in because we want to dive into some of the stuff you even you talked about in terms of not seeing a lot of representation in the advertising industry. So all that being said, like I said, a ton of accolades, a ton of things that, that you have accomplished. So you ready to have this conversation? Let's
1: go. Let's do it.
0: All right, let's talk about it. So you spoke a little bit in terms of where you grew up, which I believe was Muskegon, Michigan. Um right there on Lake Michigan, right? Which, you know, uh started off your water, the love of the <laughs> love of water, right? But talk a little bit about those early years growing up in Muskegon with your family. You talked about your father being an entrepreneur and how that shaped you as you got ready to move forward into to uh, the advertising.
1: industry. Well, we grew up in, uh, like I said, born in Muskegon. And uh, my mom was a schoolteacher in Muskegon Heights. That's where all the blacks lived um, at the time. And um, so all my friends were black. Interacting with her students as a, a little little boy, um, black folks, black folks, black folks. We had the club. It was called the Cape Canaveral Club. All all the blacks that were um, doing big things in Muskegon, that organization, and all the kids. And then um, when I was about four or five, we moved to an all white neighborhood, and I was following um, Dr. King, NAACP, and um, that was a shocker.
0: now why was that a shocker
1: Um, up until that point I'd never been called (laughs) (laughs) what's that the the look in the faces don't don't seem like they say hey cool kid what's up
0: (laughs) so so in other words that was your uh, racial turning point I should
1: say yes yes Um, that that was bad you know I was getting in fights every other Every other day it seemed like, and um, you know, different from today, where if you get in a fight, you get expelled or whatever. But I had the dopest, dopest principal. His name was Mr. Howe, and he was a white guy. And um, this kid, you know, got in a fight with this kid. He called me Nick, and we, you know, he had to go to the principal's office, both both of us. And um, he, you know, after he got done scolding doing what he what needed to be done to that kid um he, he was just me and him one-on-one and he explained jimmy you can't fight everybody but you know what what he was saying he, i didn't get in trouble i wasn't in trouble it was the kid was in trouble but he was just right. explaining to me um <clears throat> i can't go swinging on <laughs> everybody but um right. but i did <laughs> <laughs> but he never he never was angry with me at all he was he was um so he was one of the one of the um one of the white guys who was in a position of authority and that's mm-hmm. that and so because of people like him i knew that all white people weren't assholes right because in the right. beginning there it was like mm, i don't know about these dudes
0: and, and when you went, so you moved and went to a, an all-white school. How many, you know, what was approximately the number of kids, people, kids of color in the school?
1: Oh, when I say all-white, uh, I mean, you know, two, three.
0: So, yeah, so no, got you. And what, how old were you at this
1: time? This was, um, this was kindergarten. Wow, so,
0: okay, you were five, six years old? Yeah,
1: Jump Street. Um, I think I was six. Because my birthday, I had a funny birthday, so I couldn't go right when I turned five. So um, it was when I, I was coming on six, I think. So yeah, it it was. um, It was only like two or three of us. It it, it got a a few more once. By the time I got to high school, maybe five, six. You know, literally, you can. I I had more fingers than I did um, black kids that were at the (laughs) school.
0: So how did that, I mean, growing up, I mean, that's, that's a big, that's a big contrast growing up, all black neighborhood, all black school, and then young going to an all white school, hearing terms you never heard of before. um, And then being in that environment, you said all the way through high school. So how did that, Shape you as you started growing up and started thinking a little bit about what you wanted to do uh, for a career standpoint.
1: Well, in the beginning, it was uh, all the trappings, but they were good, fun trappings. It led to me being able to do what I, I do today as a creative and as a writer. But in the beginning, I want you know I wanted to be a singer like the Jackson Five, um, and, and the, the kids used to um, bounce the white kids used to bounce their hands on my Afro. Right. And it's like, dude, come on now. And, but when the J5 came along, it was cool to have an Afro. Right. So I said, well, yeah. you know, I should be in a singing group then because that that'll be cool. And as I grew, I'm, I'm pretty tall. So as I grew, I said, well, OK, we'll I'm play basketball. That that seems like a, a cool thing to do. But always in the back of my mind, um, my dad was an entrepreneur, so mm-hmm. the pride that I had when he owned the Arby's—he he owned the very first, and still to this day, the only Arby's in Muskegon. Um, he owned it, and and, and people I bring—we'd have Pop Warner football or whatnot, have a game, and my white friends on the team—we were we would go to Arby's. And dad was feeding everybody. So it was like, yeah, yeah. So that I know that was in the dome. Like, okay, this is cool. Ownership is cool. But, mm-hmm. um, but in the day to day grind of it all the way up to um, fourth, first kindergarten through fourth grade was really interesting. There was this kid named Jimmy Turner, black kid. He was, um, he wasn't in, in, he was like in sixth grade. I was like second grade or something like that. And, but he was being bussed in and he jump off the bus and he beat my brains in literally hit his lover. Bam. Beat, beat me up. And it's like, <laughs> dude, what the hell do I got to do with where I'm living? <laughs> so,
0: so you're getting it from both sides. I was, sides, getting, from, I was getting, getting it from the white kids. You get it from the yeah, black
1: kids. Getting, getting it from the black kids. But, uh, well, that one in particular, it, it was basically him it, angry about the circumstances of where um, um, where he was growing up, which wasn't a, a good neighborhood. And yeah. um, so, you know, if I talked to him today, we could have a conversation and I'm sure drink a beer over it and whatnot. But um, it was real interesting because from that period on, I, I got my cousins in Gary, Indiana. And I got my other cousin on the other side of the, um, tracks, um, uh, Mark and, and his, and his family, my dad, my uncle Henry and all that. And then Angie and, and Keith, my cousins in, in, um, Gary, Indiana. So when we, and my, and my mom and her sisters were extremely tight. So I'd be over at their house often. Right. So I'd hear the J5 for the first time. I'll never forget it. It was Keith brought the record over. Check this out. P funk, um, Al Green, Marvin Gaye, all, all that stuff. I'm I'm hearing from when I go visit, but when I was going to my white friend's house, I'm hearing um, you know stuff that they were digging, which is Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin Smith, Bob Dylan, Bread, all, all that kind of stuff. So it's real. That that was really interesting. And then, uh, like I said, as I got older, the getting called names. Yeah. And it wasn't just the kids. I'm I'm talking about the adults. I'm talking about walking to school was only a few blocks um, to school. But when you're that age, it seemed like 10 miles or something like that. Right. And um, the things that would go on from adults was pretty trippy. We actually had um, one girl who was like my best friend, white girl and lived kitty corner to us. And um, her dad actually moved out of the neighborhood because um, he thought we might get married. We were second grade.
0: Wow, (laughs) wait a minute, stop for a second. (laughs) The dude moved out of the neighborhood because he thought you guys would get married and you're seven years old?
1: Yep, yep, (laughs) true story. So (laughs) it was deep. (laughs) I didn't know that, I did not know that because we ended up um, going to the same high school. I didn't end up finding that out until I was in high school. I just thought, oh, they moved. Dang, that was one of my good buddies. That's that's all I knew. And uh, how did you find out though? Um, one of her best friends, who was also my best friend, um, told me. When, when she wow. we ended up going, like I said, going to the same high school, and I was over at um, her best friend's house, and she told me. Wow! Wow! I don't even think she was telling me. I, I think um, she told me because she thought it was common knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. So but by the time I got to um junior high and I was hooping and um high school uh, it it was it it all flipped and some of my best friends still to this day as those some of those white kids including um I I haven't seen them in a while but one of my starting starting forwards on the basketball team white dude Bobby Andre um, he called, he, he had been watching all in the family. So in, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade, he was calling me spade. So we would get into it over that and the teachers handle it. I had really good teachers at that time. They, they would handle stuff, but, um, you would think we wouldn't grow up to be friends, but he was just a kid. He was just seeing, you know, what to do, whatever that character's name on TV, Archie Bunker, Archie Bunker yeah, Archie saying, Bunker. so but um, he ended up being one of my best friends. And still to this day, Chris Fitzpatrick um, is a homie, homie. And um, mm-hmm. he's over here in California. So a lot of and Long that go on and on. A lot of those white kids were awesome. Kim Hubble, Sherry. I'm going to leave somebody out. So I'm going to stop.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. All good, though, buddy. Let me ask you this. So how did that, you know, in terms of a self-esteem standpoint, you know, how did that, if it did it affect you at all in terms of, you know, you're you're being called names that you're not didn't even know what was about. Um, and, and again, you saying your friend who watched all in the family called you spade, which kind of speaks a little bit to what we're going to get into when we talk about advertising, how somebody can see something over. It and if it doesn't have a, a, a nice of there's not a representation of it. People are going to automatically repeat it just like this nine year old kid did with you how did that make you feel as a person just being in that type of environment you
1: know it's the weirdest thing um and it's tragic tragic when i'm seeing um these kids committing suicide um because they were bullied at school mm-hmm. you know I, I was just a step below what you see in um you know in the south when they were um desegregating the, um, the schools, right. A couple steps below that. I didn't have it as that severe where you had to call in the national guard, but it wasn't cool. Right. And, um, it was very usual to get bullied, um, up until about fifth, fifth grade. Probably. It was very, it was unusual if something didn't go down that day. Right. But man, it, it, it made me stronger. I had and mom and dad were like, look at here, if he calls you this, <laughs> then you call him this. <laughs> they gave me a whole repertoire, a dictionary book of names <laughs> to call them. And I I didn't get in trouble if I if I needed to whoop somebody up. It was like, well, what did he do? Okay, well, okay, did you you know did you win? Listen. <laughs> Exactly. So I don't. So, so, oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, my friend. Go. No, finish your thought. So, um, I just didn't. It, they. I had. They had my back. I had um, the principal had my back. One fighting with him, and so um, and my parents always taught me that you need to be twice as good. This is the way it is. You need to be twice as good. So make sure you handle that. And um, my mom being a school teacher, So, you know, I wasn't like I wasn't into school like that. But, you know, I was fine in, with my grades and whatnot. So it, it didn't make it. I didn't have any. It, it only had positive impact because what, what I was able to take into the workforce. It was very, very positive in the long run. Short term, it was fucked up. You know, and make no bones about it. That That's what it was. But in terms of affecting me um, psychologically or, or something, um, I came out of it thinking I was a badass, but not in a um, hopefully not in an arrogant way. But it takes a lot. Um, takes a whole lot to, you know, when something racist happens for it to, you know, for me to even get upset about it. One thing I noticed, one, one thing I noticed, Tony. To this day, I didn't realize it, but I'll be in meetings. I've been in meetings and Smoke is with me. She works at the company or somebody else is in there with me. And somebody said something they shouldn't have said or done or whatever, whatnot. And it won't register that they were offensive. It, it doesn't register. It. And it, did you? I didn't like when he said that, that smoke talk. I didn't like when he, she did this or whatever the deal was. And I said, What happened? <laughs> I'm there. I'm at the meeting, right? And, and Uh I realized, um, as I got older, well, damn, that was my coping mechanism. And when I was growing up in there, if I, I literally, like Mr. House said, you can't fight everybody. I literally would have been fighting every single day over every faux pas and disrespect, you know, so there were certain triggers. If you did this, you know, cross that, it's like, Oh, hey. But a lot of this stuff, it didn't even register because I had to do that in order to to make it through. And that that served me well in the workforce, because um, most of these dudes are racist. I'm not saying they're pointy hat racist. They they don't even know they're doing it. But I've had (laughs) I had I hired this. This one woman when I um, started this car I'll tell you this last one to shut up and you ask you whatever follow-up questions. Oh good, uh, man. This
0: is what we want. We Wanna to listen to the story? Go ahead. Finish.
1: I had this is like I had my company was like a year old. And there's this one black chick. Oh, she's a soul power sister. You could have seen her in Oakland back in the Black Panther days <laughs> and whatever Angela and whatnot. Davis, huh? Yeah, man. She she was dope. And she was a writer. And I and I hired her. And I had um, this one um, white guy who was a partner at the company and she was there a day. And he said, Jimmy, Jimmy, we we can't keep her. We we cannot keep her. I said, what's wrong? Homie, home chick is, uh, she's dope. What are you talking about? Um, Worked at White and Kennedy or worked on that. She's dope. Well, she called me an asshole. And I said, the first day? <laughs> and, I went, and I went and talked to her. And she said, yeah, I called him an asshole because he did such, 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 such. I said, you could at least talk to me. I can't talk, call my partner and I mean, did he call you a, a you know, it, it was just she was feeling that vibe from him. But right. he hadn't called yeah. her uh, you know or anything like that. It was, it was something we could easily... Talk about, but she was hyper right, s- sensitive, sensitive to it. To it yeah. Where I was a little dumbed down on it, and and and, and you know, I won't say any more about no. that. But I love that sister; she's dope.
0: So, 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 speaking of that, right? Just growing up the way you grew up, and then you said the negativity that you faced—it was positive because you know it prepared you for the world. Right? There was no sugarcoating it. You knew. But at the same time, to be fair to your point, um, you became desensitized to it. So when stuff even happens today, you're less you know, likely to say, well, well, back up a second, what did you say, whatever the case may be, right? Let me ask you this, How, where was your mother in all of this? Because it seems like, number one, it seems like you had a good foundation with your parents who taught you. And to be fair, I'm just, you know, just, um, I grew up in Detroit. You grew up in, 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 Muskegon, but my parents, my mother taught me the same thing, right? You know, these are the things you have to deal with. You're going to have to work twice as hard. So that same talk. So where was your mother? How did your mother help you prepare for life, um, in a world where, you know, you we're the minority, you're the minority.
1: It was, it was, It was really interesting because um, dad's family owned a bunch of land and um, mom's family owned a bunch of land and she, um, her dad was a, he owned a mortuary. He actually owned the business, Right. So those those were my parents. So it was when you say I was my mom, it, it was a combo thing. And mm-hmm. um, she she would come in from school, uh, uh, um, whatever position she held. She wasn't the principal, but she, you know, she had a um, had a lot of say. <laughs> I'm going to mm-hmm. tell you what you're not going to do. I'm not da, 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 not talking to me, but talking about what happened at work. And um, her boss, black guy, (laughs) black guy or or whatever it was, she was like, you're not going to do this. I'm not doing this and I'm going to do it this way. And so on and and so forth. So I'm picking up on on that stuff. And dad was laid back. Mm. So dad would, um, you know, here's I remember coming home. We were on a swing set and we were rocking it. Too too hard for for the white neighbor, and he told us that you know get off that swing. You're gonna you're gonna me and my cousin. You're gonna break it. And we went home and told my dad, but I didn't tell him like dad. This guy such a such a such a such. It was like daddy. He told us to get off the swing because um he said who is he where? And it was like uh oh that was unusual for dad. That, if I would if mine would have been this first one I saw, she'd been already over it. So you would expected yeah. that. Yeah, but I had so I had that balance of. And thank God, as a black male, to be able to understand to keep your composure, even when you know you need mm-hmm. <laughs> you you should rightfully have to say something. But I learned a composure piece from um, Dad, and then Mom was you know when you need to open up a can. So mm. <laughs> it was it, it was it was a good balance.
0: <laughs> so speaking of opening up a can, my friend, number one, thanks for sharing that. Um, But speaking of opening up a can, how did you eventually migrate? Because you ended up going to Michigan State. Mm -hmm. How did you get into the advertising industry? And the reason I'm going to ask you this question, um, and I just reflect back on my career. Um, I didn't even know anything about advertising. I kind of fell into advertising and fell into the advertising industry. So I'd love to hear from you. How did you say, hey, this is something I want to try. I want to get into.
1: There's two things. One is Bewitch, and um, the other one is Chris Fitzpatrick, our starting point guard and one of our best friends in um, high school. So um, so tell us about Bewitch,
0: because I don't think a lot of people, our audience, may be familiar with Bewitch.
1: Okay. Bewitch was a witch, and, um, <laughs> and, and, and she was integrating herself into human society. So, so it was a television it, it was show. A it was a television te- show. Television <laughs> show. Da, 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 da. Look it up. Be, um, they should look it up. Be witch. It was, it was a dope show. <laughs> so it was um, Darren Steve thirty minute um, sitcom. Sitcom. D- yeah. Darren Stevens was the husband. Samantha Stevens was his wife, and Larry Tate was the the the, the stereotypical white dude and account guy. So if you've seen the white-haired guys on Mad Men, that was Larry yeah. Tate. And um and Dora was the mother-in-law, that was Samantha's mom. And right. Darren, she didn't like Darren. She it was like it was like uh you know white family. Mother-in-law don't like the son. Doesn't like the son-in-law. And but it was even deeper than that when you look at it, is like the white family and the daughter married a black dude. So <laughs> back back especially back then right so they hated she the, the, pretty uh, pretty much they the the um the in-laws except for aunt clara hated darren and they'd be turning them into a horse or putting t- some type of casting some spell on them and samantha the whole jig was uh samantha trying to get them to stop trying to get them to accept darren and trying to get them to uh, uh, uncast the spell but Darren was an ad- advertising executive. And when when he was like, had the spell on him or something, it, it was about to be a disaster. But when Samantha finally would convince her mom or her father to uh, undo the spell, he'd snap out of it. But they had a meeting at the, <laughs> at the house and uh, advertised the clients over and whatnot. And he had to go downstairs and save the day. And he would come, uh, you know, soda pop, pop. He keeps you popping or what you know whatever he'd say in the in the climb go that's great, I love it and there there it was, and I said oh wow that's that seems pretty cool that then I mean he's got a beautiful wife, he's got a a big house, and he doesn't seem to work that hard and i i am down with let, let me do that and um And I still don't work hard to this day. My wife thinks I work hard, but because I love it so much, it is not work. But um, she says I'm working all the time. But um, so it was that. But I didn't think much of it at the time. It wasn't until around ninth grade. And mom asked me, what am I going to do? And I'm just trying to give her something so she'll go away because I'm going to hoop. I'm playing in the NBA. That's what I'm doing. Let me just give her something. I hadn't thought about it, thought about it. And I said, oh, Fitz, uh, Fitz told me, Chris Fitzpatrick told me um, he was going to go into advertising. So I told mom I'm going to be an attorney. So she'd go away. But I remember Fitz's thing was he was going to go into advertising. So a couple of years later, after I had done some program with uh, for attorneys, I said, I'm not going to school for seven years. I'm not, do- you know, I'm not doing that. So let me do this advertising thing. That's that's what I'll do if the basketball doesn't work out. But the basketball is going to work out, but I had have to worry about it. And my mom had a fit. You were going to be an attorney. You're going to be a lawyer. I said, yeah, but I'm not doing any of these things. Do you not understand? I'm playing in the NBA. I didn't do any of it. So between fits and bewitch, that's how that came about.
0: I love it, buddy. Oh, and one other
1: thing, Tony. There was, along the way, I was always into the commercials when I was young. Mm. I was big time. Uh, uh, the Alphabets with the Jackson 5 and them singing ABC. Um, mm-hmm. um, Count Dracula, Chris Cereal commercials. Um, and then uh, I like to teach the world to sing. Uh, mm. The Christmas special, Charlie Brown Christmas special was brought to you by Coca-Cola. Most people don't remember that. And then there, by the time I got in high school, Soul Train was the jam. And there is, that's where all your black commercials were on for Afro Sheen and, Mm -hmm. but there was this joint called um, Street Song um, done by um, Burrell Advertising. Tom Burrell's an advertising legend, Anna Morris. And I forget the art director's name, I'm sorry. Um, But that mug, Street Songs for Coca-Cola and that dude finishes up at the end,
0: Coca-Cola.
1: I know I can't sing where the hill beans, but that was bananas. And that always stuck in my brain. So when I, okay, well, if I don't, when I had to make that pivot, okay, this basketball ain't gonna work out. Who, who did that? And it ended up being Burrell advertising that ended up being my first gig.
0: So, so, so number one, I love it, my friend. I mean, think about it for a second. And, and you know, you watch a television show and you, the, the husband of the show was an ad exec and you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then the next thing, you know, your mother's all over you about what you're going to do for a career. And you said, I'm going to be an attorney. Right. But your friend said, I'm going into the advertising industry, but more importantly, you liked all the commercials. You still remember them today. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, at the end of the day, just that, that little, um, that little trek right there, you know, made you go into an industry that, to be honest, you kind of really took off and did a lot of things and been a pioneer in a lot of areas. Um, I'm pretty sure you wasn't thinking of that in the ninth grade because, like you said, I'm going to be an NBA star.
1: Is it, 100.
0: <laughs> so tell us, man, because obviously there's a, a lot of people who watch this and listen to this are in the industry. How did you get that first shot? Um, you know, and I, and look, let's be fair to you, right? You, you know, you're African-American. There isn't a lot of African-Americans or people of color in the advertising industry. So how did you break in?
1: Tell you the truth. I, I mistakenly took what I had learned from, from sports into advertising. I thought you just need to be good. <laughs> I thought that was, you know, if I'm better than you, then you yeah, know, that's just the way it is.
0: So when you said I, you just thought you needed to be good, like, what did you mean? What do you there mean?
1: were a lot of ads that were terrible. Even, even I knew that back, back then I'm watching them. I said, dude, I can do better than that. I can kill that. I can do this. They should, I was thinking that at a, at a young age. And um, so you had to do a dope ad for it to stick in my brain. And um, I actually, you know, you hear about Kobe or, or magic or uh, MJ where they studied, the greats, I actually, I actually studied, right? I actually um, studied what those commercials without knowing I was studying them. If you hear hear about um, Magic Johnson and he's out there playing in his yard or playing, they lived in an apartment complex, he's playing on the court, he's playing the game um, from beginning to end, four quarters, overtime, Time out, all that kind of stuff. Chamberlain's out there, Kareem's out there, and he's out there doing his thing. So even I didn't he didn't know he was well, maybe magic. Preparing did. himself. Yeah, but yeah, magic yeah. was. But I hear your point. I, I didn't ahead. I didn't know I was um preparing myself to do to do this, right? I just mm-hmm. thought, well, they should have done it this way. They should have done it that way. So when the basketball didn't work out, I said, okay, let me put my my portfolio together and I'll actually, um, you know, just send it in and that'll be that and I'll get a job and I'll be cooking with grease. But um, didn't happen that way. The, the first experience I had was um, Campbell Ewald in Warren, Michigan. And it was um, 85 and I was sending my book out all over the place. And, um, and you know, there was no internet. So, and my name is Jimmy Smith, and my mom's a school teacher, so we're using the king's no, the queen's English at that time. And so, um, and I've been going to school with all these white kids, and you know, I go to black neighbor party and say, Man, you talk proper, proper. So, I had that all that, um, shit going on, right? So, I this this woman, the internal headhunter from Campbell Ewald calls. Um, may I speak to Jimmy Smith? I'm at home, me and Smoke are at home we're living with our parents. They had just gotten married. And mm-hmm. um, she she said, um, we have a job opening. I saw your portfolio. I think it's great. And I want you to come in and, and um, meet the creative director. Because mm-hmm. at that time, there was a recession. So she, I said, um, she said, when would you like to come in? And I had just taken dad's car to drive um, to Chicago for an interview. I believe it was Burrell. I was driving to Burrell for the um, interview. And so we just gotten back. I only tried to take dad's car like once a week because you know, it wasn't like there were a whole bunch of ad agencies in, in Muskegon. So um, I said, um, well, I just took dad's car. Can I come next week? Like I can come Monday or Tuesday. And she said, oh no, no, no. You need to come tomorrow. And it was strange at the time because, um, first of all, you asked me when would I like to come in? And she said, you need to come in tomorrow. There was urgency, but it wasn't urgency in the beginning. And she said, Mm -hmm. "I I need for you to meet with the creative director because he's going on vacation. And I'm afraid that if he goes on vacation, you'll miss that opportunity because there is a job opening and I need for you to see him tomorrow. I said, well, let me check with dad. Dad was cool. He said, yeah, they got a job opening. Yes, absolutely. Do that. So, um, got done with him. Uh, called her back. Told her, you know, basically, um, I can come. What time? 9 a.m. I need to be there at 9 a.m. Now, Brother Tony, Muskegon is over here. Yep. Yeah, well, yeah. Where'd you have to go? Warren, Michigan.
0: Okay. Outside of Detroit. Outside of
1: yeah. Detroit. So, um... Me and Smoke had to get up at 3 a.m. Get dressed by that's four. like a
0: three-hour drive, right? Yeah, yeah, but well
1: back then the the speed limit was fifty-five miles an hour. Right. So um that you know, got up at um three, got dressed by four, wanted to make sure we were there super early on time in case there's traffic and, and what which there was. And we did, made it. And um Smoke drove so I could sleep and get some rest and be sharp for the interview. And I get there. And um, I meet with the woman, and she's going through my portfolio like she'd never seen it before. And I'm like, man, this is odd because um, she's already seen seen it. That's why I, that's why I'm here. <laughs> and then I said, ah, she's trying to buy time because the creative director's in a meeting. No biggie. Mm-hmm. And just chill. The meeting is wrapping up. It's finishing. Mm-hmm. I said, I guess I better say something. Mm-hmm. I said, well, um, so um, when am I, what time am I meeting the creative director? And she goes, oh, no, no, no. You're meeting the creative director. I just wanted to meet you. She didn't say that you, you, when
0: you, you talked to her on the she phone. She didn't
1: say that when I talked to her. I said, well, you're going to make me next week. She said, no, I just wanted to meet, meet you. I said, well, okay, but what about the job opening? Oh, there's no job opening. For real? For real. For real, for real. And I'm like, and I'm starting to become not not rude, combative, but no, you said, and oh, she didn't know I was black.
0: <laughs> uh, buddy, I, I'm i be honest with you. I, cause I'm like, what happened?
1: <laughs> but she didn't know you were she black. She had no idea. Like I said, this is before the internet, before FaceTime and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Name is Jimmy Smith. It, it wasn't Kareem, Ab, uh, you know.
0: <laughs> yes. It wasn't Abdul or, or, yep.
1: or it just it. good old or smoke. D- Deshawn. <laughs> it wasn't nothing like that.
0: <laughs> so So she didn't know you were black and then all of a sudden changed the the opportunity. I, you can't meet with the creative director. You know, I just wanted to meet you. Thanks a lot. Yep.
1: It that gig evaporated. So that's when I that's when I said, Oh, this is like this is like back to kindergarten, first grade, second grade again. This is starting all over again because I'm not a basketball player, right? And here we go again. So that's when I knew. How did
0: that make you feel though, buddy? What what well, on that three hour, four hour drive back to Michigan, I mean back to Muskegon, what was going through your mind?
1: I will show you. You, you, you will, <laughs> you, you will regret that, um, that happened because I tell that story every opportunity I get. If it comes up, I tell it and let them know and, um, I'm not mad at them, but right. don't do that no more. And, and, and then I, I was just, it, it was good. It was, it was obviously it was tragic and, and screwed up, but it was good to know what I was walking into because I didn't know. What I was sending out my portfolio and wasn't getting any love. And I just thought, well, you know, I had read, um, Maxine Pietro's, how to put your book together and get a job in advertising. And so I'm following all these steps and people, when I'd send my letter, I, I, I wrote, um, I could write really well from a young age. So when I'd send out my letter, it wasn't a conventional, hi, my name is Jimmy Smith. I'm looking for employment. It, it, it was, you know, a creative letter and everybody would go, oh, this is a great letter. And This and that. And so it started explaining some things like what was going down. So uh, I I said, (laughs) I said to mom and dad, you were wrong. I don't have to, I I don't need to be twice as good. I'm going to have to be 10 times as good to get (laughs) to crack this one, but I was up to the task. I I was like, um, excited to do it. And it also got me in the Burrell, which, um, you know, my first taste of advertising was Burrell. So I'm, I got all these black folks. Um, Burrell is a, a, the, one of the first um, African-American-owned agencies in the United States, in the history of the United States. It's one of the first, right? So, mm-hmm. and, 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 the, and the audience that we were marketing to was black. So I got to be, get eased in. You know how they take a quarterback and like they had uh, Patrick Mahone start behind Alex Smith and kind of learn mm-hmm. for a little minute. So I got to ease into it with people that looked like me, talked like me, acted like me, and was trying to do that type of work from the culture. Um, so if I would have gone into um, a white ad agency right off the back trying to do what I was doing, that wasn't going to happen.
0: Let me ask you this, my man. So what year was this?
1: This is 85. Um, so this is
0: 1980, and you got the job at Burrell in 85, right? Correct. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that you had to start at an African-American agency in the advertising industry, which we know there wasn't a lot of uh, African-American advertising agencies. So that's how you had to break in because the white advertising agencies would be if it would be a long shot for them to hire you. Is that what, what very long that shot?
1: In? There's like I told you how many blacks were in. <laughs> I told you how many blacks were in at my school back in the early parts. It was it was something like that percentage wise back in eighty five in the advertising agencies in the white in general which, market what, ad agencies.
0: Which, to be fair, is not even forty years ago. Correct. Right. So think about that for a second. Right. An industry that really had no people of color in it. And for somebody young like yourself, who was who loved, really liked advertising, I would say, who was, you know, looking at all the different ads and remember them and saying, this is great. This is horrible. I can do this and I can do that. You had to start off at an African-American. So if there was no African-American advertising agency. The world probably wouldn't have known. Jimmy Smith, is that what I'm mean? Oh yeah,
1: a hundred percent.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah. Thank wow. Tom Burrell, Alma Hawkins. Um, shout out to Alma. I I wore on that interview. I forgot my dress shoes. Like if you see me in a suit and tie, you you just, it's like seeing a unicorn. But back then, I'd wear my suit and tie and shoe shoes, not you know basketball shoes for for those interviews. And um, I got there. I had on my um, Air Force Ones with my suit and, and tie, which, you know, now no big deal. But back then, is, you're coming for an interview. What are you doing with, <laughs> with basketball shoes? Exactly. And um, I forgot who I was going to interview. I forgot. I, was, I guess I was nervous or whatever the deal was. So I get up there to the receptionist and I'm like, I forgot who I'm going to interview. Can you show me who the creative directors are here? And she showed me a list of names. And I chose, I said, Emma Young. No, no, not Emma. Alma Hopkins. Alma Hopkins. That's who it is. I said, might as well wing it, see what happens. (laughs) And Alma poked her head out and she said, I don't have an interview with you. But come on. You know, I wouldn't have gotten Mm -hmm. that. I don't believe I would have gotten that from a, um, that would have been just the excuse they needed at a general market agency. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't even remember who he's supposed to. You know, exactly. Uh, exactly. Um, but anyway, she introduced me to Alma, introdu- introduced me to Tom. Um, Tom hired me. And the next thing you know, I'm working with my mentor still to this day, Lewis Williams. And mm-hmm. um, he taught me all the ABCs.
0: That is awesome, man. So fast forwarding. How did you get to Wieden and Kennedy? Because you went to Widen and Kennedy. And if I remember correctly, you became the first creative director there.
1: I became the... Um, first black creative director. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, I became the first black creative direct, first writer, first black writer, I believe in all of White and Kennedy, but for sure in, um, in Portland, in the Portland office. That's mm-hmm. where the office I was in. And Daryl McDonald was the first black art director to work there. So when I, I went to Hawaii... Well, I went to from Burrell, I went to Foot Cone and Belding. And my, mm-hmm. and the only reason I got in Foot Cone and Belding is because that one of, at the time I got there, there was only, I believe there's only one black creative director, because I think um, two of the other black ones had left. So there's only one black creative director, Al Hawkins. And he used to work at Burrell. He hired me at Burrell, I mean, at um, Foot Cone and Belding. So again, I got to see, how a black exec conducts business in an entirely white organization and black and, and, and Hawk was blacker than black, <laughs> but yet he was, he, 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 he was blacker than black, smooth, cool. And so I learned a lot, ton from him and then um, end up going to, um, they fired him eventually at like three years or something like that for no good reason. Stupid. And um and so I had no protector. So once you had no protector, I was gone, and Done. and the other black folks there that in that group were gone, and um and the white folks that were in the group were gone, and and so I and we ended up moving the um um to Smokes' home in here in Santa Monica. So I was living at her, at her house with the little boys and whatnot. But I sent my work over to this place, uh, Peck Sims Mueller. And it was in Hawaii. And um, one of the, one, I was, it was early in the morning. Um, let's see, Peck Sims, Sandy Sims said to me, hey, Jimmy, how you doing? And I said, hey, Sandy, how you be? And he said, no, Jimmy, it's how are you doing? I said, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh, gonna be tight. <laughs> um, so eventually, those are the only two places I was ever fired from. Foucault and Belding and um, Peck Sims Mueller, which is out of business mm-hmm. now. And so I had to get back. And this is, I'm answering your question. I had to get back to the mainland. And none of these headhunters were helping me to get back <laughs> to the mainland. I was like, uh oh, you just set me out here and now I can't even get back. It's, it's worse than being on the mainland because they already ain't hiring black folks they sure enough ain't hiring black folks and flying them in from Hawaii. <laughs> so I was at um, Footcone. I went, I, I used had only had my American Express card, my gold American Express card, my little prize thing there. That's the only thing I had to get back. I didn't have the money to pay it back at the time, but I, I said, but otherwise I'm not getting off this island. So I just right. used that and, and I took a, a, a trip. I went to um, L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, St. Louis and New York. New York was the last stop on interviews. I just blitzed all the ad agencies I, I could find. Right. And um, I get to this one. It was I didn't even meet with Joe Muse. I met with um, Ruben and Poster. Uh, one of the guys at that agency, Jerry Rubin, I believe it was. So Jerry had the Honda account. Rubin and Poster had the Honda account and um Pex and Muse Cordero Chen, which is Joe Muse's company at the time, had a sliver, you know, the black, the black part of the business of Honda. So mm-hmm. little did I know. I didn't know. He talked to Joe about me, right, and told me you, you should meet me. he, he should meet me. So while that's all going down, I'm off to San Fran, off to Chicago and New York. I meet, um, with a guy at FCB Labor Cats. Mm-hmm. So it's different from the FCB in Chicago. This is FCB in, in New York. So the, the, um, head guy, the head hunter, calls Jimmy, they got an opening at FCB Labor Cats. Um, you, you, I, can you come? Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm here. I'm here to meet these big people. Yes. They got to open it. So I go there. They did indeed have an open. And they had a cigarette account. Now, my dad, who, um, you know, after Jesus, that's my dude. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and and um, he had passed away. He died of a heart attack um, while I was living in Hawaii. So it was very traumatic living in Hawaii. So I meet with the, the head of um, FCB, the creative head. And he goes, now, look, Every once in a while, we have the writers. You know, one time a year, we have them write a bunch of lines for our cigarette brands. So only only about a week. Just do it for a week, and then we're done, and we get to work on everything else. Are you cool with that? I'm like, oh man, I I, I got the little dudes on my shoulder, right? I got the one. But look, you got two two little boys. They're only like you gotta do what you one, gotta do. one in three, one in two, another one. Your dad used to smoke, and he died of a heart attack. You can't be doing no heart attack advertising. going <laughs> to kill people. This was going back and forth. It, it, it was all happened like that. Even though I'm sitting there, I said, "Man, I can't do that, dude. I, I, I mean, I'll do beer. I'll do, if you got some, you know, vodka, anything like that. <laughs> but I, I can't do cigarettes, man. Man." But and I knew I, you could see it in his eyes. Well, that's it. So I had to fly all the way back, dejected. Like I spent all this money on these credit cards. I have no way to pay it back, and it's a disaster. I get back to Hawaii. I called up Burrell, and um, he said, "We well, can do freelance. Well, if you, if you come to Chicago, you can do freelance." And I said, okay, I'll do that. So we moved to um, Chicago. And i am uh, they knew they were going to hire me right off the bat. They just wanted me to pay for the ticket. <laughs> mm. so, so they hired me within the week. I was there earlier. We, hey, we got a job. What do you want to hire? Y'all slick mugs. Uh, and um, so I was back with Burrell. But Joe Muse called. He called and said, hey, look, we got a sliver of the Nike account. And that I knew because what I didn't tell you, Tony, what I didn't tell you is when I was at Burrell the first time. And Anna Morris remembers this. She was 80 something years old. I just talked to her a few weeks ago. We're working on hopefully getting her into the um, one of the advertising Hall of Fames and mm-hmm. um, I'll say what it is. It's the One Club. We're trying to get in the One Club Hall of Fame. Got it, got it. Got so, it. Breaking news uh, on the Black Executive she Perspective. She's not in yet. We tr- we're working on it. We're working on <laughs> I it. I love it. I love it. So um, she remembered this ad that I did with um, Mike Tyson, and we presented um, he was a Black cowboy. This is just one example. He's a Black cowboy, and um, he's eating the, um, what's the the steak? It was like uh, um, the McRib. He's eating the McRib, and he comes into the saloon, one a McDonald's saloon. I want, I want to, um, you know. They give him. They, he didn't ask for anything. They just give him the rib, thinking, because they're scared of him, right? He's just, just right. like the eighteen, you know, seventies or something like that. And then they asked him how 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 it tastes. He goes, Oh, it tastes good. It tastes wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how Mike talks, right. <laughs> and That was the spot. And they took it to McDonald's and they said, what's black about that? Um,
0: So even though, hold on one second. I want to back up. So even though you had Mike Tyson, who's a black person, even though you wrote it, they still said it wasn't, what's black about it? It's not black. What's black about it?
1: And this, this is uh, now again, this is Thirty year, thirty something years. This is nineteen ninety, and um, the th- and it was it was deep because well, what'd you think? We were just in Africa, and then from slavery to the civil rights movement, we didn't exist. We didn't do stuff. We weren't cowboys. We weren't. You know, they didn't even know the history of cowboys <laughs> to n- n- know, you know, buffalo soldiers. They inherited any of right. that. Right. So, that was what I was facing working out of Burrell. Go ahead, you got a question?
0: Yeah, cuz I wanted to expand on that for a second. When they said it wasn't black enough, what did
1: they mean? From their cultural from their white cultural cues, they have a they have these stereotypes, and it's not just McDonald's. It's whatever brand, no, no, anybody. Yeah, but I, I want on. you. Yeah. Um, they had a stereotype on what black is, and what was that? Grandma, granddad. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't that it was. Bad, because grandmas are great, and grandmas right. are, are great, and family, mom and dad, it's great, taking the yeah. kids to McDonald's, it's all awesome. But we couldn't be in space. We couldn't. Um, oh, dancing and singing was cool. You could always dance and so sing. So that
0: part, I, I kind of figured yeah. that was one of the things. So it was. But when you said they, you couldn't be in space, like what does that mean? Oh, you're talking about an outer
1: space. Outer space you couldn't be in outer out space. You, you know, that's not black.
0: That's not black. So you can't have black
1: astronauts. Cowboys aren't <laughs> black in their minds. Got it. Right? I'll mind. give Got you one it. other example. This is my this is in '85. They were introducing the MECDLT. Keeps the cool side cool, the hot side hot, right? And it was in this styrofoam, black bad for the planet. But at the time, you know, this is the first of its kind. So your your lettuce and tomato wouldn't get all weepy and all that kind of stuff. So since it was the first sandwich of its kind. It should be in, in my mind, it should be introduced by the first man because this is the first sandwich, first man makes so sense. It makes sense. And he was going to be the spokesperson. Once again, what's black about that? And and I didn't I had never heard that question before, because this is one of my you know first presentations to um, we didn't get we didn't present to McDonald's at that time. It was too low on the totem pole. So the creative directors and they came back and they said they're asking. They love it. They want to they want to do it. They want um, to actually think it should be the general market agency that should do this because they love this idea so much. But we're the black agency, so they want to know what's black about it. And, you know, Tom and Alma and Anna all thought this was ridiculous. But this is the report back. Right. And. Yeah. Can't we just tell them a black man wrote it? I mean, and they're like, "No, Jimmy."
0: That should should suffice. That's (laughs) correct. I mean, but but this is the thing, though. So this is the thing. This is where I'm a little stumped a little bit, and I'll tell you why. Um, and this is in nineteen nine in the nineties. That was um
1: that first man, McDLT, is eighty five. The Mike Tyson joint is nineteen ninety. Got you. So where I struggle
0: is. That is that it's not black enough um but the people who are saying that are white people correct right and at the end of the day their definition of black that's why I, I'm, I'm missing something here in terms of what their definition of black. what because they wasn't singing and dancing or was it because uh, like you said it was a cowboy coming in and they didn't recognize that black people were cowboys so it had to be uh, if it was a drug dealer or if it was some young kid coming in playing basketball with a basketball, would that suffice more than versus just a general market occupation? Even though there are black people who are the stars of it, that wouldn't have been good enough.
1: That would not have been good enough. The deal yeah. was you had to fit basketball. We're playing sports. Thumbs up If your um, grandma. Oh, baby. You need, yeah. You know, <laughs> we're all good, <laughs> and so I didn't understand what um, for for years. I I thought that um, Burrell just wasn't bringing it. I you know it's like how come I, how come we can't do this? How come we can't do that? How can, I did not understand what was going on. I was um, too naive um, about the situation. It wasn't until I talked to Tom like late last year and he told me all of the stuff that was going on I'm like oh my god I I I I mean oh my god
0: wow wow so look buddy even so you're right backing up a little bit <laughs> when you said you were in kindergarten and <laughs> <in> first grade <laughs> and all the stuff you dealt with it definitely prepared you <laughs>
1: absolutely
0: that that the stuff you would deal it in corporate America in the advertising industry so I mean look that could have been those are situations to be fair where people say you know what this ain't for me okay because I can't do what I I love to do and when I do it race is an issue everywhere I go from getting a job to trying to you know do my job and be the best at it so Two quick questions. What made you persevere? Because you still became very successful in the places that you went. And then number two, what made you start your company, Amusement Park Entertainment?
1: Um, I learned through basketball, which a lot of us do, um, through sports, right? And when Judd Heatcoat cut me, I got cut like two two times, I think, maybe three um, what, real quick, what year was, what, what year did you get cut? I got cut and let's see, 80, 81, uh, 80, 81. I didn't even get a chance to try out. They didn't even have tryouts. So it, 82, 83, um, I got cut.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it.
1: Got it. Okay. Um, go ahead. Finish your thought though. Um, so him cut me, right. And then I get married. Well, I'm seeing how my dad, you know, does with his family, right? He, he he's the man of the house, and and um, I'm gonna be like dad, so I got I got to provide for the family. Even though mom mm-hmm. was working, mom's providing too, but um, you know, want to be like dad, so I had no choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of the drive to. I understood it was a two-parter. I understood what I did not do with basketball in order to be successful. I understood. I didn't practice like I should have, didn't work on my game like I should have, didn't listen to all the advice that when it when it did come through. I didn't do what Magic did. So, I knew exactly why I didn't make it. So I said, that ain't going to happen again. Mm. So they caught me at is like a perfect storm for somebody not um wanting, wanting to be denied. If, if you hear, the, you, you've heard some of those stories about, um, you know, what Giannis went through and, you know, coming from yeah. Nigeria and Greece. And mm-hmm. the, so it was all that kind of stuff. It's like, well, I'm not, it had nothing to do with race. I just wasn't going to be denied mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm going to be successful. And I've chosen this, If <laughs> it could have been finance. It could have been whatever, whatever it was, I wasn't giving up and you weren't going to stop me and um there you go and, and and like i said from my parents growing up saying don't you let them stop you you can do whatever you want to do you can be great you mm-hmm. can just this, this so i knew they weren't as long as god was cool with it um mm-hmm. i'm i'm good i'm in there it's just going to be a matter of time so when i when did you go ahead buddy finish your thought so when i um the part i didn't tell you when i got to FootCone with with al um it was the reverse of what it was at burrell so at Footcone, when you're presenting to white clients, I am pres- I think it was for Sunkiss um, Soda or something like that. It was Run DMC. And they had just blown up with Aerosmith and all that kind of stuff. And they were like, eh. <sighs> See, if, I, if if that would have been to Coca-Cola or something, they would have been down because right. it's, it's music, it's cool, it's, it's whatever. But this is now presenting to white folks for the general market, and for some mm. reason, they they didn't connect that the general market <laughs> kids are listening to hip hop. think mm. hip hop's a fad. Then oh, exactly, right? exactly. It's gone. Exactly. And I'm going I'm sitting up there. You do know that in your kids CD collection, which they don't have now in your kids CD collection is Run DMC. Right. You, you do know, know that. But they weren't going to go there. So I get to that that went away. Hawaii goes away. I'm back at Burrell. Joe Muse calls. They got Nike. Um, not, you know, not the entire account, but they got, and I said, I can go work on Nike and I can be who I am. I don't have to worry about it right. being black. I don't have to worry about right. it being this or that, as long as it connects to sports. And I, if there's one thing I know, I know a lot of shit, but I do know me some sports. So <laughs> I can just do, do my thing. As long as it fits the culture of that sport, I don't care if it was golf, tennis, whatever, as long as it fits that culture, I'm good. So I got in uh, Burrell. I mean, uh, Muse Cordero Chin, Muses is black, Cordero Mexican, David Chin, Chinese. And so I would be doing ads for Honda or whatever, whatever, In sometimes in um, um, Spanish, sometimes in Mandarin for one of the bank accounts that we have. With the Nike account, I was working with Scott Bedbury. He was the head of Nike advertising. And Joe let me do my thing. And I knew uh, Tom said to me, I'll never forget. Um, he said to me, he's trying to keep make sure I stayed at Burrell. And he said, Jimmy, if you go to, um, yeah, they have the Nike account, but if you go, you're only going to do one, one Nike ad a year. And I was like, that's all I need, Tom. I just need right, that one right. that swoosh in there. I'm, I'm good and I'll get into Whitening and Kennedy. And so I, I, I was, he was right. I, we, we did like average two, two ads uh, a year. I think I did six ads total for Nike, but they won awards and they got yeah. the attention of Dan Wyden. and um, through that I, I wrote um, I don't know if you know the story or not, but I Dan we went up there to present to Dan. Scott Bedberry wanted us to work together and we get up there and I had been asking Dan, you know, hire me, hire me, hire me. And so we did this joint presentation, Muse Cordero-Chen and and Kennedy to Nike, blew them away. Dan is whispering. Um, Joe is just over there, and I'm going, okay, yeah, I got you, I got you, you know, I'm going to call, I, I got you. I'm mad excited, and um, come to find out, those two had been talking. It, Dan was telling Joe, you know, Jimmy wants to come over here, but I I, I don't want to take him from you. And I'm like, dude, dude, I'm, I'm trying <laughs> I'm trying to, trying to get in. I'm trying to get I'm trying to blow up, Joe. And Joe is my right. mentor. I love him to death. Love Tom to death. But I'm trying to get a hold of this Nike account so I can do my thing with those budgets and whatever and whatnot. So uh, I called Dan for like two weeks. He didn't return my calls. So I talked to his um assistant, Mary Norman, and she said, I'll give him the message again after about um after like two weeks, I wrote him a, a letter. I thought it was five pages, but Susan Hoffman, who was a partner at White and Kennedy and was there when, when I was there, and but she she's like one of the old school. I think she's employee number twenty or something like that, right? Wow. Um. So she just sent me that letter. I hadn't seen that letter since I wrote it, and, and so you're talking about now. You're talking about 1994. Anyway, Dan read the letter. I overnighted it to him. He called me the um, the night that he, the very next day when he received it, and said he, he was he's going to hire me. And you know that was um, that was the turning point. Ju- you know, all oh. of those were turning points. But now I'm work. I, I just got drafted by the Lakers.
0: Yes, <laughs> now you got drafted by the Lakers. I love it. So, so Amusement Park Entertainment, how did you, what, what made you, what inspired you to start your own company?
1: So, um, Hair Jordan. So I represented all of black American in 19, early 1990s from Muse Cordero Chip. Scott Bedberry would fly down, Rob DeFlorio, he was a Nike advertising exec. They'd fly down, they'd show me work from Whitney Kennedy, and they wanted to make sure it was authentic. Phil Phil Knight was very sensitive, making sure that um, we were authentic to um, who's buying the shoes and who. If you get the black kids to buy the shoes, then everybody's going to buy the shoes. Right. So um, they'd show me work. It was stupid. But, you know, I'm trying to get in there. So you show me what you want to I'll let you know what I think. So they showed me the storyboard for Space Jam. And um, I'm sorry, for Hare Jordan, H-A-R-E, mm-hmm. and Jim Riswold did that. Um show it to me to say, what do you think? I said, stupid, stupidest idea I've ever seen. What does Michael Jordan in basketball got to do with Bugs Bunny? The boys in the hood ain't gonna dig it. So I, I was kind of being like um McDonald's from the 80s, mm-hmm. right? right uh, I, like, right. why can't? Black folks be in a cartoon with Bugs Bunny and they'd be cool and why well, can't? But that was how it had, up until that point I had been trained <laughs> without even realizing it, right? And um, anyway, they didn't listen to me. It, they run a 60-second spot in the Super Bowl. It blows up. They come back with part two blows up even bigger. And Warner Brothers during that time is trying to turn it into a feature film. And they're mm-hmm. trying to convince um, Phil and Nike to turn it into a feature film. And at that time, as I understand, I wasn't in the room, obviously. As I understand, Phil just said, we just make shoes. And he wouldn't do that today. But at the time, everybody's learning and growing, right? And and Warner Brothers is saying, look, take whatever it was you spent on that campaign that you paid all that money to run on the Super Bowl, to produce, and whatever, whatever, take that and put it towards this feature film you'll make money off of your commercial. Kids will pay you money to see your ad. And Nike didn't do it. Fast forward is 1996 and Warner Brothers by then said, forget that, we are just gonna make the movie without you then. <laughs> we'll hire Michael, we'll change the name from Harry Jordan to Space Jam. And mm-hmm. we'll hire the same director, Joe Picka, who's friends of ours. Uh, we'll hire Joe, who did the commercial, and we'll just go ahead and make it. So I'm sitting in um, Jim Rizwall's office. He was my boss at the time. And again, he was the creator of, of Hair Jordan, which became Space Jam. He's got little credit at the very, very end of the movie. It says special thanks to Jim Rizwall. And I'm going, Riz, we call him Riz. How much money did you make? I didn't make shit. And that's the, is literally what he said. I didn't make shit. And I'm going, well, shit, it's number one at the box office. It's, um, you know, I believe I can fly as number one. I mean, come on, man. I, I'm a, and then I go, oh, you're, dummy, you're asking your boss how much money he made. You can't ask your boss that. And so I pull back and I say, I'm sorry, man. I shouldn't ask. He's no, I didn't make shit. And I right. didn't understand it. And I'm, I'm what do you mean? And he goes, he broke it down to me that when you create these ideas, um, the um, companies, the brands own it. Unless you do a contract Mm -hmm. and structure it, the brand owns it. And 9.9 times out of 10, if it blows up bigger than what it could have been, um, blows up than just a commercial, they aren't going to do anything with it. It just IP that just lays there and, and dies and gets forgotten about, right? going to find out I'm sitting with Joe Pitka and he goes Space Jam made 200 at that time, 260 something million dollars in 1996 worldwide. It made 3.5 billion in merchandise, t-shirts, hats, lunch pails and whatever. All wow. told it made close to 4 billion dollars and at that time Nike was a 6 billion dollar company. And I'm going oh, wait a minute wait a minute. I thought we were writing these little Sixty second, thirty second, and they give us these little fake gold um, trophies, and I thought that was that was the deal. Wait a minute, and I started doing research, and then a book publisher, I'm at Whiting Kennedy now. Book publisher calls and he goes, hey, hey, and calls me and my um, my John Jay, who's who's a, was a partner at White and Kennedy, and my boss at the time, and we did a bunch of NYC basketball stuff that blew up and they saw our print ads. They say, hey, why don't you guys take those print ads and turn it into a coffee table book? And it was shot by um, John Hewitt, brilliant photographer. And um, like, ordinarily, if not for Space Jam, I would have said, who's gonna buy a, a coffee table book full of print ads? Ah, yes they will, yes yes, they will. I remember what happened with Space Jam and Harry Jordan, so we're gonna do that. And so my brother, who's a Tony award-winning poet, Rounded up the poets, wrote some of the poems, put in that coffee table book. It's in museums around the world. Then Will Moselle wow. is at EA. He calls. He goes, Jimmy, I want you to take what you do and uh, I want you to help us with this video game, NBA Street Series we're doing. I said, I'm going to do the advertising. I'm going to call Dan. Dan's going to be excited because we're going to get the EA account. This will be awesome. And he's like, No. I don't care about the advertising. I want you to take what you do in the in Nike Freestyle, the font campaign, um, put that into that flavor, that soul, that that sauce into the video game. Well, OK, shoot. Sure. So that thing blew up. And like I told you earlier, ESPN ranked it one of the top 25 um, video games of all time. Um that just kept happening. We did NBA um, Nike Battleground, no Nike Battlegrounds, which is on which is on MTV, and is uh, yeah. at the time it was the highest ranking show in the history of MTV Two. Back when MTV Two was a thing thing, and then went did Gatorade, G W Gatorade. We did Gatorade Replay, got nominated for an Emmy, but I had Gregory Allen Howard who wanted to write the movie. Gregory Allen Howard wrote, the, at that time, the biggest selling um, mo- football movie in history, Remember the Titans. Yeah. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't. We, we got Warner Brothers, Disney, Paramount, Fox Studios, all come. Hey, let's turn that into a movie, just like what happened with Space Jam, or Hair Jordan to Space Jam. They won't do it it was at that point I said, no, we can't keep, we can't keep, (laughs) you know, giving these gems. And I won't say what the Bible says about that, but we can't keep giving these gems out and um, folks not reacting in the proper way. So let's start a, a company that does branded entertainment in the way that I envision it. Now we'll do 30 second spots with the best of them. We'll do print ads and digital and whatever, whatever, whatnot, but, not, but we'll do those because that's my background. That's where I was raised on. But we'll do this branded ain't entertainment thing on the level that it should be done and help brands to realize the potential. If you're going to pay millions of dollars and pump it into whatever piece of communication, you might as well have it work harder.
0: Right, right. Well, listen, my friend. I mean, listen, that is... Uh, extraordinary where, you know, you were able to build your own company with all these different experiences that you had. And then more importantly, be able to diversify and bring more people of color into the advertising industry. So final thoughts, my friend, like tell us, what do you want to leave the audience? If you had to surmise all your experiences that you've been through, And then more importantly, be able to share some 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 thoughts with people today who are either in the industry or looking to get in the industry, especially people of color. What would you recommend?
1: Well, first of all, I talked to the black execs because like like we discussed, right, there was a time where there weren't that many of us in advertising. Now, not only were they not in advertising, but they weren't on the brand side, right? You were Mm -hmm. presenting to white folks who didn't understand the culture and um, that's what you were doing. Now, there are not enough Blacks on the brand side, but there are way more than used to be back in the day. You got CMOs of brands. Um, Mm -hmm. I won't name the brands, but (laughs) they're out there now. They're CMOs. They might as well be white folks because what they do is they hire um, they do exactly what the their white counterparts do. They bring in white agencies. That's that's what right. they do. And, and they try and cover it by hiring um, a white, like I headed up Gatorade, right? So we're cool with giving um, that company the business because it's It's owned by white folks. Mm -hmm. They're very hesitant to um, hire black owned marketing, advertising, entertainment companies. Very hesitant. It it rarely happens. I get more business from white folks than I do from um, from blacks and not just me. Uh, I just happen to be talking to you. There's there's a long line (laughs) behind me of black owned companies. So what I would leave it with is um, is um, that needs to change. That needs to change. We can't be. We're it's already tough enough in, in this in this business in this world when you're going up against um, what we're going up against. Whether it's just walking down the street trying to take a jog, whatever the deal is, right. without having to deal with that. But um, that's the next thing is the black folks um, people of color need to um, not hire their not hire somebody because I don't hire anybody because they're black. It's like right like, no right, you, right. you better be dope. I'm <laughs> um, white, black, blue, pink and purple better be dope And there are many black owned companies that you know have the chops, have the um, credentials and are twice as good but don't get the business. So, um, like I said, those, those folks on the black folks on the brand side need to, um, they should do, do the right thing. We call them Stevens. If you saw Django and you saw Samuel Jackson's character and what he was doing, the Jamie Foxx's character, we, that's, that's what we call it. Stevens and Stephanie's. So, and they are not all you know, of them. Ivan have no, no, no. I, I, get it. I over get it. At Over at um, the 4-H is is a CMO over there. That dude is bad. He's awesome.
0: Got it. So you got a book. You wrote a book called Truth. Plug it real quick for the audience so they know where to find
1: it. Oh, dig it. Um, The Truth is a graphic novel that I wrote back in um, 19, I want to say 99, 1999. Um, Mm Dan Wyden funded it. Uh, gave me three, 300, $300,000 to do that um, graphic novel. And he hated it. Now, Dan is like one of the whitest cats you ever want to meet. But um, he, he hated the story. He didn't believe it was going to happen. He said, if that would never happen, well, you'll find that when you read the truth that um, a lot of what I wrote in 1999 actually took place is it took place and is taking place today. So it's about a, a black superhero whose um his power is to help you see the truth. That that's his that's his main superpower. And um is um the artist is Nolan Woodard, um mm-hmm. W-O-O-D A-R-D, Nolan, mm-hmm. and um and myself. Dark Horse awesome. is dark, what- it's a dark horse book to Dark Horse comics.
0: Where could people find it?
1: You can find it on, um, I have to give you the link so you can put that up with the podcast, but you can find it on, um, on Amazon.
0: Awesome. My friend. So we'll definitely send, definitely we'll put it up on our, not only in the episode, but we'll put it up on our website. But my friend, I really want to appreciate you coming today. I mean, look, you got a million stories, which is awesome. (laughs) You've had a great experience. You've learned a lot, Uh, you know, just a a couple of things that like you said earlier in the beginning of the show, um, what you went through as a young kid definitely prepared you um, for what you dealt with. Um, And to be fair, I get it, but it's kind of tough because, you know, hopefully we can get to a level where somebody who's five and six years old or nine and 10 years old wouldn't have to deal with the same things that you dealt with. And more importantly, They'll be just looked at or judged based on their character, not based on what they look like. So hopefully we can get there. But for you to come on today and share your story, we really appreciate it a lot. We love you a lot. And hopefully we can have you come back at some other time.
1: Right on, Tony. And thank you for taking the time to do this and getting the word out. That's what's up. I'm sure you've interviewed a ton of folks. So um, make it happen. Keep doing your thing. Thank you,
0: my brother. We definitely are. And we want to thank you too for tuning in to another episode of a Black Executive Perspective Podcast with our guest, Jimmy Smith, CEO of Amusement Park Entertainment. So I think right now it's time for what? Tony's tidbit. It's time for Tony's tidbit. And look, Jimmy, his life in terms of what he just explained to us, definitely epitomizes what the tidbit is today. So the tidbit today is... Every difficulty in life presents us with an opportunity to turn inward and to evoke our own submerged inner resources. The trials we endure can and should introduce us to our strengths. And if you listen to the entire episode today, it epitomizes Jimmy Smith because of the things that he went through. Right. He was able to look within. And I love what he said earlier. Hey. Hey. I'm a winner. I'm not, I didn't practice hard, but I know exactly what I'm gonna do to make this work. And regardless of the circumstances, the obstacles, I'm gonna learn from it and I'm gonna get better. And exactly what he did. A kid from Muskegon, Michigan, who grew up and watched Bewitched and said, I'm gonna be an advertising executive And through the trials and tribulations, ups and downs, the traveling, the miles, the gold uh, uh, MasterCard that he spent money on, uh, he was able to accomplish his goal and a lot more. So we wanna thank him again, Jimmy Smith, CEO of Amusement Park Entertainment. And again, we wanna thank you for investing the time into another episode of a Black Executive Perspective Podcast. Please give us a rating, let us know how you like this episode. You can follow A Black Executive Perspective on all our socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook at ezek And again, you can listen to any of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. From my host, excuse me, my guests, CEO Jimmy Smith, my producer, Double I'm Tony Tidbit. We talked about it and we're out. Black Executive
1: Perspective.